Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here with my two brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis. Today, we're talking about ourselves. It's the Brother, Brother, Brother origin story. You can learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com, rate and review us on iTunes, or follow us on Twitter or Facebook for more info. Now, let's talk about how we got here. So here's how this thing came to be. A long time ago, my parents immigrated to the United States from England in 1968, had their second child and first son, me, Wyndham Lewis, brother number one. They split up in 1971, and my mother remarried in 74. Two years later, in 76, my mother and stepfather had a son, Jeremy Sartori, brother number two. My sister Sarah, my new brother, and I moved a lot. From Charlottesville, Virginia to Richmond, Virginia, back to Charlottesville, on to Corning, then Ridgewood, New Jersey, Duxbury, Massachusetts, and Summit, New Jersey, before Jeremy left for college. Our parents moved a dozen more times after that. During this time, my father moved to California, married and divorced two more times, moving from Pacific Palisades, Santa Monica, up to Berkeley, San Francisco, Oakland, Montclair, and back to Berkeley. I spent my school years on the East Coast, my summers in California, And given that our family was still in the UK, many of my school vacations and holidays in England. Not necessarily the cool bits like London, more like East Sussex. Ultimately, when I was away at school, Jeremy, then six, was abandoned by my sister who went to college, and I went off to school and raised as basically an only child. Simultaneously, my father moved back east to D.C. and remarried for the fourth and final time in 86. And in 88, he had his second son, Christian Lewis, brother number three who was raised with the notion that he had a sister and brother without much physical evidence to support that claim. Jeremy and I bridged our age gap largely through a love of music, an obsession of mine cultivated during long periods of adjustment in new towns, coasts, and countries. Ultimately, I finished college and moved to New York City, and Jeremy had a refuge in the city and an ability to start seeing live music with me as his, quote, adult supervision. The flowchart went something like this. Brother number one force-feeds music taste to brother number two, who ultimately develops his own taste and feeds music back to brother number one. Simple. Part two of this experiment began taking shape when Christian came to visit me in Boston after having married and relocated. Note, Christian was the only first grader at Juniper Lane School with a sister-in-law. I began treating brother number three to the same rigorous course of age-inappropriate musical proselytization as I had with brother number two. Remarkably, it took hold, but I had neither the time, proximity, or interest in making sure it stuck this time. So Christian was left on his own to take his Music Geek starter kit and run wild through the cul-de-sacs of suburban D.C. He later did a two-year stretch at a British boarding school. In the meantime, Jeremy left school, moved to New York, and then Austin, Texas, and worked in film production. Ultimately, Jeremy landed in Chicago, where we held his bachelor party at the inaugural and final Intonation Festival, a fantastic but poorly supported music festival that a year later became Pitchfork Fest. Jeremy, in his capacity as marketing director at Whole Foods, made an unsolicited phone call to the festival's organizer, Mike Reed, and Pitchfork Festival had its first ever corporate sponsor. A year later, I convinced Jeremy to give one of his Pitchfork 
festival all-access passes to my 17-year-old brother, Christian, whom he'd never met, thus igniting a now 11-year musical discussion that has birthed our podcast, Brother, Brother, Brother. Brother, Brother, Brother. So that's the brother, brother, brother origin story from my perspective. Uh, Christian, what, what are your first memories of music being part of your life? Well, I'd actually like to start out before I even talk about uh, what I was listening to. I think I, I want to start this with a with a note on style, uh, specifically listening style. <laughs> uh, so, I uh, I've always been of the view that music is better when it's played really fucking ear bleedingly loud. Um, and Wyndham's and, and my dad was was born in 1939, Britain, at the start of uh, of World War II. Um, and I think the uh, the thunderous noises of the London Blitz seem like an appropriate setting um, for for what I'm about to tell you. Given uh, given a taste he enjoyed later in life for uh, for really high volume, um, you know, and and for all his great taste, which which I'll get to in a minute, uh, you know, he never liked or remotely understood rap. And again, that might have something to do with 1939 in Britain. Um, but uh, but incidentally, that also meant that. If any group of guys, for instance, were to pull up in the car next to ours when I was a child um, and really, like, pump out the jams at a stoplight or in a parking lot, he would slam a worn 8-track copy of Handel's Messiah into the dash of his vintage car and Soldier Boy crank that shit like some kind of suburban Robert Duvall choppering over the horizon at dawn. Um, This was total audio war. Um, so with that in mind, I have always basically played every song that I've listened to at the highest possible volume in my earbuds. Um, I'm sure this is going to have some kind of negative repercussions later in life, but you know, for now it's fine. Um, I think, you know, in, in terms of, uh, in terms of the starting points for like what I listened to though, you know, a lot of it was, um, was, so my first great love really was like Zeppelin and that was, my mom gave me a, a Zepp CD, I think when I was like 10 or something and it was just heavier than anything I'd heard and just, just kind of raunchy. On. Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, it was awesome. Um, but, you know, it was like sort of heavy, raunchy, bluesy, gritty stuff. Um, the Stones were also a really big part of that. I, I went to two uh, early, uh, or two Rolling Stones concerts as a, as a young child, including, I believe, Voodoo Lounge, uh, which I don't remember because I was too young, and then uh, Bridges to Babylon, um, which uh, I do remember a little bit better, um, and which was pretty awesome. I mean, those guys really can't fill a stadium. There's no question about it. Um, and then, you know, the other thing that you listened to, honestly, was like big sort of country radio, um, and not not big country radio, but, um, like new like, country. not, not the band. Yeah, yeah exactly. Sure. Like new, new pop country. Exactly. Um, and you know, I, I have gone up and down on this, uh, this particular genre topic, but like, I think ultimately I came around to it and realized it's pop music like any other, and there are things to like about it and things to dislike, but it certainly kept, you know, meant that I walked, uh, like I had an open mind. And so I, I got really into bluegrass a little bit later. Um, and, uh, and then I guess, you know, the, the really formative, uh, formative sort of moments, I guess, in terms of my early development here were, you know, dad's love of the Beatles, which is of course hugely important. Um, and in realizing sort of the, the diversity and breadth of their, their songwriting abilities and that kind of thing. And then, you know, uh, sort of poking around in, in revolution records, um, which was a, a place in DC that I've, I've referenced a couple times on the podcast, uh, which was like up at the Van Ness, Van Ness stop. And, you know, it was a really awesome place. Like the guys would crack open any CD for you and let you listen to it as long as you wanted. So if you were broken, 
14, um, that was a, a really, you know, useful experience. Um, but plus the guys, the two guys who, uh, who ran it were in this band called Gist and they had like wonderful recommendations. So they, they turned me on to all kinds of stuff. And basically sort of, it was the, like, they were responsible for one half of my education. And then, you know, you Wyndham, um, were sort of the other half. And in terms of sending me those early musical care packages with stuff like my bloody Valentine and Interpol. So that's, that's how I would, uh, that's how I would start sort of the, the listening side. And then I, I just a, just a brief mention here of a couple of early traumas that still live with me. Um, I hate Flanders and Swan. If you know what that is, um, it's either because you really like it or because you have parents who subjected you to it. Uh, in my case, it was it was the latter. Um, it's stupid, unfunny, 1930s, I don't, I don't even know, 30s, 40s, whatever, like musical sort of comedy. It's, it's as bad as it sounds. Um, the, uh, the insistence of my English Auntie Chrissy Hello, if you're listening, that I perform and listen to the Macarena basically every day, several times a day, one entire summer that I was in England, which is the most like humiliating experience the on top of everything else. Actually, kind of <laughs> dance monkey you know, dance. You know, weirdly, I like that song. You wouldn't if you were me. No, I don't think I would. <laughs> um, and uh, and then the last thing is the bagpipes because I think as we've talked about a couple of times, I went to boarding school in England and just to fuck with us in the mornings when we were all like we had to go to chapel I think like six days a week or something like that and uh you know we would all just like put it like walk in sit down put our heads on the pews and go to sleep um and if we felt that too many people were sleeping father James Powers great name very cool booming voice would uh would send the bagpipist bagpiper in um to like and just this like stone 150 year old chapel would just like reverberate these blood curdling noise like i understand why it's a war instrument now is what i'm telling you yeah so no it, it makes me that angry i mean it, it makes me want to go <laughs> yeah exactly just to shut those fuckers up yeah so Jer- what about you jeremy yeah so um no bagpipes in my uh, my early childhood, luckily. But um, lucky bastard. Yeah, most of you know, I didn't really have so uh, when, when I was mom and then my dad. I would say sort of lack music, so it didn't. Nothing really came from my parents. They're they're big musical folks, so I had a lot of uh, Avita and uh, you know Les Misérables when I was young, which I you know, have grown to hate equally to your bagpipes as an adult and as a young adult. But my earliest music really, you know, it was funny. It, it came a lot from, um, I think initially I was, I was into skateboarding and I was the, the skateboarder who, you know, had the cool like vision streetwear hat and the, you know, Converse chucks, but couldn't do a trick. So I think in California, they call that a poser. Um, but in the back of like Thrasher magazine and trans world would be a lot of like hardcore punk compilations and, and fanzines. And I kind of initially got into sort of hardcore punk rock and, uh, you know, I do like certain punk rock, but I, I, I really don't like hardcore and I don't think I liked it that much then. Um, but it was, it was yeah, like it was it, one of those things you're supposed to like. Yeah. It was like an aesthetic. I mean, granted there's, you know, some great albums, minor threat, black flag, but, but I think I've come to even appreciate those as I've gotten older than I really did then. And, and so I think, you know, initially Wynn took an interest to the fact that I had like some dead Kennedys and, and some interest in that stuff and started to feed me, um, albums sparingly. So I, I think you gave me like a love and rockets album, which I probably pretended to like at the time. Um, you know, uh, played me Sonic youth and, and some, some other albums. So I, I got really kind of just into, into music that way. And, and I'd say mainly, 
you and then MTV were kind of my two sources. And, and right off the bat, I kind of knew what I liked. And, and music to me had, because I think a lot of it was visual with MTV, it, it had a look, you know? So anything, I hated hair metal. I hated that look of the 80s rocker guy. It just looked so cheesy and corny to me. But then you would yeah, get a, like... It's a, it's a weird thing to be stuck in a moment of fashion that you know in real time that you sucks. fucking Sucks. <laughs> it's just awful. <laughs> But, you know, a band like in between new metal, yeah, U2 would come on or R.E.M. or something. And and that's probably why, you know, to this day, those bands are are kind of important to my, you know, getting into music. Because I I just knew they weren't my favorite by any means, but they were different. And they were something that I I kind of clung on to as they weren't what, you know, the mainstream was. And I might have seen, you know, a a U2 bumper sticker on somebody who looked cooler. Um, And then from there, it's funny. It's funny you mentioned like Led Zeppelin and things like that, because. I think when and I started to really connect on music, you and I, I remember this Christmas vividly. I, I think mm-hmm. I was in fifth grade, and you just gave me a stack of records. And I had a record player. I think I had like Dead Kennedys, Rush, Fresh Fruit for Rotting Vegetables, a, a Clash record, and a few random hardcore records. But you gave me a really eclectic collection. It was Sonic Youth, Sister, XTC, Black Sea, um, Husker Du, Warehouse Songs and Stories. Um, just a really cool record collection. And, and that really kind of from there is where I, I took on like a seek a seat my own sort of identity with music and, and like you Christian I, I really went to new, I went to a, you know had a birthday party once where I took everybody to Newberry Comics and we all got to buy an album and I bought Exploited Let's Start a War mainly because of the album cover and everyone else bought like Aerosmith Records you know and so um, that's that's really kind of was my initiation it's the one thing that I wanted to just mention is you were talking about Zeppelin and the Stones so like you know I'd gotten this kind of left of the dial alternative sort of music background that really has always been my base, which I think is, is unusual. Um, granted, it was fed by an, an older brother, but I obviously had a lot of interest in it on my own as well. So when I actually heard Led Zeppelin, it was much later, and it was through friends. So I didn't get that from home or from even Wynn. And I remember asking Wynn, like, you know, kind of shyly, because I was worried that he would, like, make fun of me. And I was like, do you like Zeppelin? And he's like, oh, I love Zeppelin. You know, and I was like, oh, phew. They're cool too, you know. But it was kind of an either or thing back when we were younger. It's like you, you know, you either liked classic rock or you liked, you know, sort of punk and, and what was underground. And, you know, I think, you know, Seattle in the early 90s was, you know, where the twain shall meet. Um, but, you know, there, it was one of those things where if you listened to, you know, the Smiths, you weren't listening to. Aerosmith and Zeppelin, and it, it's a silly thing because I like all of them. Um, so yeah, but there was—I think it's sort of the same division that that you know used to exist. You know that if you liked music and the arts and such, you didn't love sports. And like there was a there was kind of, but you know I always liked both, and it was always a strange thing to me to to have to, you know, to you know when people excluded one and or you know didn't like both the way I did. Yeah, no, it's true. I think there was a little more separation. And I think as I, you know, kind of, you know, I was a kid who who ended up playing sports and did a lot of kind of, you know, I guess less arty things and and more sort of mainstream things. But I always had, um, you know, this sort of kind of unmainstream music source. So, you know, I like the trauma aspect that Christian mentioned as well. And I'm just going to mention one and then when love to hear what you have to say. So mine was the Grateful Dead, <laughs> and, and my trauma around the Grateful Dead was that I had a lot of really good friends who loved the Grateful Dead, and growing up in suburban New Jersey in the, the 90s, and I think any suburban town, that happens. 
but my trauma was going making the mistake of going to a Grateful Dead concert with my friends. So all my friends had bought <laughs> floor seats, <laughs> and I was uh, up in the nosebleeds because they want to pay all the money. And, and you know, let's just say, obviously, Grateful Dead parking lot parties are known for a few things. I ended up in the in the nosebleeds. And the minute those like out of tune, wobbly guitars started, you know, the wow, whatever the hell they're doing, tuning instruments, all of these like, you know, hairy chested, beer belly, New Jersey, cheap seat guys just got up and, and women started doing the hippie dance. And I just knew immediately, like, I've got to get the <laughs> fuck out of here. <laughs> Yeah, this I, is I, my hell. I remember looking like a doe, you know, running through the the crowd, and they're like, "Oh, first show, man!" I'm like, "Last show, man!" Like getting the hell out of here. And <laughs> ended up spending the rest of the night in, in the parking lot. But no, I, I actually had a similar situation. I'd rather <laughs> sit in the parking lot in silence than listen to this shit. I, I remember going to see them in Foxborough in like '86 or '87, and it was like my entire school was there, and all these people that I didn't really like had put on like hippie clothes and. And were, you know, if you ran into them, they'd be like, dude, Wyndham, it's great to see you. And I'd be like, what, dude, 364 days of the year, you, we don't like each other. We're like, what the fuck's the difference today? And uh, then, yeah, then the music started. Um, and I was up in the uh, nosebleeds with a bottle of whiskey. Um, but uh, it, it did kind of, it does kind of cement that. I remember the Grateful Dead sort of cementing my... Um, you know, sort of proving by ne- you know proving by negative reinforcement, which was sort of you know they they it gave me confidence in the music that I did like because I I knew that you know there was this thing that was you know a juggernaut around people my age and where where he lived and I just I was like no sort of obje- I feel like I'm being objective and I hate the shit <laughs> so anyway my my. Uh, I, I will uh, keep my memories of, of music being part of my life relatively short because I feel like I've almost told this story more than once before. But, um, you know, as a kid, we moved a lot, and I, uh, you know, I was fixated on music. Uh, nobody, um, you know, really, uh, it didn't come from anybody else. I didn't have the big brother thing. Um, you know, my mom and, and Paul, um, Jared's dad, uh, didn't, you know, they weren't real... Uh, Mom was a big music fan. Um, The the reason I refer to the 70s AM as divorce music. Um, You know, real Carly Simon, kind of Neil Diamond. um, And so I still love that stuff. Um, And then Dad and his third wife had, like, a very healthy record collection. Uh, His third wife, Nanelle, who uh, Grandma, um, our mother's mother, would refer to as Nanelle number three. Um, They had, like, a pretty... um, pretty interest, you know, pretty strong interest in, in music. So I guess, you know, some of those things are rooting around in, in my parents' record collection, but I don't know. I feel like I, I kind of broke out, out into it on my own. And, you know, one of the things that was weird about um, me being as a kid was that I would listen to the Top 40 every week. It was a nationally uh, syndicated radio show uh, that you could get anywhere in the country. So, you know, it didn't matter whether I was on the East Coast as a, when, you know, when I was in my school years or on the West Coast with my dad during the summers. Um, you know, you could always listen to American Top 40, and I used to listen weekly. It was like a Saturday afternoon thing, and I would literally uh, chart progress of songs I liked and chart the lack of, or the, you know, sort of regression of songs I didn't like. I wanted them to fall out of the charts uh, and sort of had a rooting interest. Like, it was almost like sports to me, um, which I was also a big fan of. So it was... Um, um, and then, you know, also my, you know, when it, you guys had a different experience than I did where, you know, our parents, um, Christian, my dad, 
uh, Jared and I's mom and and um, my stepfather, Jared's dad. Um, you know, I they were younger uh, when I was younger, so you know they were less established. They were more in their they were in their you know late twenties, early thirties, and they go to concerts. And yeah, I remember when Jared's dad was dating our mother. Um, you know, I saw Three Dog Night. And I saw. I think, believe I saw the Jacksons, Paul Simon, um, a bunch of sort of, you know, mainstay 70s bands. And then on the flip side, with my dad being in L.A., uh, not only did he go see concerts, and I saw Wings uh, in 1975, um, but we also, uh, he hung out at a bar in Santa Monica called Ye Olde Kingshead, which is actually still there, uh, but under different ownership. And it was a real sort of hang for... Uh, Brits that had relocated to the West Coast, and on any given night in this bar, which um, I spent an inordinate amount of time, my sister and I, Sarah, spent an inordinate amount of time, and as young people, you know, on any given night, you'd have the guys from ELO or Mick Fleetwood or a handful of uh, Tom Jones hung out there. Uh, It was kind of a funny scene, Uh, not that I really could place these people at the time, but, you know, you could kind of feel the swell of somebody around somebody important. So there was something to that. And um, being in Los Angeles as a kid, it, it, you know, it was a very strange uh, experience and much different from my East Coast life, which was much more of a traditional, less crazy uh, existence. So anyway, that was, you know, that's sort of my young life in music. As I got older, um, I discovered college radio, namely WICB, when we lived in upstate New York, uh, which is the Ithaca College radio station. And I also found that as a 13, 14-year-old, I could, I was more of a fan of the station than most students. And so that my requests at any given time were pretty fast acting. And uh, if anybody uh, sort of my vintage is listening, I used to sit there with my box, my uh, cassette box, player and my fingers on the pause button with the record button (laughs) pressed down and when the song came on I would lift my finger off the pause button usually miss the first couple bars and record songs and that's how I would make mixtapes so um, a very DIY kind of thing but that's when I started listening to things like the Smiths um, the Alarm, Roxy Music uh, Bowie a bigger dose of Bowie uh, all sorts of, you know, sort of early 80s, Joy Division, New, uh, New Order wasn't out yet. Uh, God. And then, you know, add to that the fact that we were going back and forth to England a fair amount, and that sort of became my calling card among my friends, even my friends who were really into music, that I could, that, you know, sort of can, uh, fairly predictably once a year I'd be in England being able to buy new music in England where uh, it's hard to imagine now that the, you know, the, the lines of communication are so open and, and the internet exists, but it used to be that a, a record that was released in England would take two years to chart in America and vice versa. There was usually a two-year lag or at least a year lag on release dates on either side of the Atlantic. Uh, so when I went to, you know, when I would go back when I was in high school, I guess, early high school, you know, picking up Susie and the Banshees records or the Jesus and Mary Chain, Psycho Candy was a big one. Uh, They were really, you know, these were really kind of landmark moments for me. And this is, this was my 
cachet within a group of people who also liked music. Yeah, it was so. your was your transatlantic record arbitrage scheme. Um, exactly. But, you know, I, I do, I mean, I think that you make a good point, though, that, like, it, it was it was true for me, too, and I think for Jeremy, based on what he was saying, that, like, you know, from a young enough age, like, this becomes part of your identity, mm-hmm. and your love of music becomes something that, like, your friends get to know you for, um, and you become the person they turn to, which is, like, a really cool feeling, and it definitely sort of, it, it fuels the the process you know yeah. it's a it's it's like in earnest it's really it, it's a it's awesome to be to kind of feel like you you know you have the lock on like that that sort of area of expertise or whatever within a group of people the, the flip side of that is that you know it also was the source of many of my earlier traumas which was going to school dances in junior high and you know being so shy that you know, girls would come up and want to dance, and my excuse was always like, "No, the, the song sucks." <laughs> <laughs> I hate this song. Maybe another time. You know, so yeah. it was uh, it was a thing to hide behind as well. It was totally a blessing and a curse. Yeah, and I think it's still kind of you know, it, I've always seen it as such. It it was a way to be, become close friends with people that. Um, you shared an interest with, and people in a way to differentiate yourself, and <clears throat> tend to, you know more more likely to alienate yourself from people who were fairly normal. Yeah, I think you guys uh, may have moved too far north at this point because I had to go to Cotillion, uh, which, which for those um, who don't know, was like a, it's sort of Our like what Kennedy I was talking is about. Kennedy is in it right now, I believe. Oh yeah, white gloves and all. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. a little like uh, a little like being forced to do the Macarena by your aunt, except you're forced to foxtrot by a lady you don't know. <laughs> um, so, anyway, um, with, uh, sh- with that, should we, should we go to a let's, break? Let's take a break. All right, so uh, let's, let's hit uh, Scarlet Begonias by the Grateful Dead. <laughs> Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Tonight we are talking about ourselves. We're actually talking, uh, we're discussing the origin of the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast and how we got here today. So, Jer, what, what are some songs or albums that, that you think changed your life or were very pivotal for you? Uh, it's a great question. So, I mean, uh, there's two kind of main genres of music that I, I kind of keep as my sort of uh, brick and mortar, and, and it's guitar-driven rock, and then I really like hip-hop a lot. And so the, one of the first songs that I heard that really floated, you know, my boat was Teenage Riot by by Sonic Youth. And, and I think you might have played that for me when really early on. I think I was in, in probably fifth or fourth grade at the time. If anybody was around me in 1988, they heard that song. Yeah, it's it, it, exactly. Song were, yeah. And it's one of those songs <laughs> Just before that, Christian was born. Uh, I got to say, like, you know, as much as Daydream Nation gets touted as an album that is a great album, I, I rarely listen to that album, but I've listened to that song over a million times. Um, you 
You mean the album's more than seven and a half minutes long? <laughs> and then in addition to that, um, you know, both Three Feet High and Rising by De La Soul and Public Enemy, Public Enemies Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back, were my first introductions in, into hip-hop and, and really took me, you know, way into that genre. And, and I in the early 90s, late 80s, was really primed for that. So like your kind of punk win or, or sort of new wave, um, post-punk that you grew up with and Christian, kind of the Brooklyn scene and yeah, yeah, and Interpol, um, you know, I, I was the right age, right time and place for that 90s sort of, uh, you know, golden era of, of hip-hop, early 90s, and, and with UMTV What's, raps. Um, it's so funny, the, I, I was just listening to... Uh, uh, Malcolm Gladwell's podcast the other day, and and he had a, a basically a scientist that came on and said that the music that you love the most or the music that you most cherish is the stuff you listen to when you're 18 and 19 years old. It's kind of funny because I think in both cases you and I are like our very formative, very important moment was like 12, 13. Yeah, it was a little younger for sure, and um, yeah, and I think those were just those were albums that kind of brought me into. Um, you know, just brought me into those genres and, and they're, they're what I listen to today. So I, I still constantly seek out sort of guitar-driven, poppy rock, and I, you know, um, still look for great hip-hop. And, and so those are, um, you know, those are albums that definitely hit me. Um, Album-wise, another one that I'm just going to throw out there was Nevermind, and that's an obvious choice for somebody my age. But also, I got to say, it was really validating for me um, we were talking earlier, and I think Christian at the end of the last segment was talking about sort of your identity, and I certainly was that guy that that people turned to. As funny as, as our podcast has, has gained some attention, I had a friend reach out and, and on Facebook and just an old friend who I haven't talked to in years and be like, hey, I remember a mix you made, and it was Stevie Wonder, Suede, uh, you know, Guided by Voices. It was just like a great mix. I was like, God, I wish I had that mix today. And that's the, those are the types of things I did. And, I, you know, I was, I was very much, it was my identity. So when Nevermind broke and I, you know, was listening to sub-pop bands and, you know, none of my friends were listening to more mainstream or classic rock, everybody all of a sudden loved the music I loved. Coalesced and it was great. Yeah, thing, yeah, exactly. And, and so that, and not only is it an amazing album that changed everything, it was sort of that time where I felt, you know, like everything I've worked for, <laughs> my, my mixtapes and my, uh, you know, <laughs> albums has come true. It's pretty great. Pretty great stuff. Uh, Christian, what, what about you? Songs, albums that changed your life? What, what I mean, um, yeah. yeah. Since well, so most, of, most of the ones that changed Jared's life happened to have landed in the year that you were born, 1988, so... Um. Yeah, no, I mean, I think uh, the the first one, you know, I'll, I'll be quick here. I mean, the the and and hit sort of three points or eras, right? Um, and you know, first was, was the first song has got to be Juveniles back that ass up, um, which I voted for every day for three weeks on TRL as a child, and this this taught me the importance of voting in our society. <laughs> Um, but also, you know, I, like it was the first time I could, um, well, I just remember it being like an, an awesome moment where I really felt like it was, uh, it was totally ownership of, of my music. Right. And like, I, you know, I liked the participatory quality and that probably was, um, the first, you know, moment in a long, um, like 
path of, of uh, decline in which my brain started getting mapped by the internet instead of um, uh, original thoughts. But, um, you know, it was like that, that was a cool experience that everybody got to like participate in that. And it's kind of like Casey Kasem except with less shitty music. Um, and, uh, and then the, another one that I remember, you know, being really sort of formative and important just because it, it did sound pretty weird to me was, was the first time I heard the Velvet Underground and Nico. Um, and I always talk about this album because, like, the first uh, the first song on it, Sunday Morning, really, like, I was just sitting in the car thinking, I, this is not what I expect. I mean, everybody told me this was really, like, raw and edgy and strange and sort of, like, you know, uh, an important sort of uh, touchstone in, like, the avant-garde or whatever. Um, this sounds like a very, very mellow pop song. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of it, like, Wyndham, I think you contest more than I do that this is... Um, a pretty conventional and not very edgy pop album. No, um, no, no, I don't mean that at all. I think for, you know, but it's one of those ones that is way more, I think I think you and I are saying the same thing, which is that it was way more accessible than it had been made out to be. It, it, it had, you know, Boogeyman written on it, and it was, you know, your friend. Yeah, this was not um, metal machine music, nor was it, you know, some of, like, Eno's weirder ambient sound stuff. I mean, like, there are inaccessible albums that I find it difficult to sort of fully wrap myself in. This isn't one of them. Um, You know, this has hooks and riffs and things that, like, are very familiar to you sonically um, and, you know, great melodies. And, by the way, for any like way too young kid to be listening to this. The lyrics right. are so you know raunchy and fucked up that like it's a. I mean it's great. Um, yeah, I think the lyrics are what really like, makes it edgy. You, you know? totally feel like you're getting away with something when you listen well, to a song about I, BDSM and then another one about heroin. You know. I think yeah, and I think it was the same. You know, I mean obviously that you know incredibly, incredibly edgy stuff for 1968, I believe, or 67 uh, when the Velvet Underground and Nico came out. But you know, in the same in the same vein of of you know, it was a bit of cultural tourism in the same way that you know when we were listening to N.W.A. or or something when we were younger, and it just sounded extremely dangerous, and we didn't we didn't know whether to fully believe uh, what we what we were being said, or whether you should second guess these things, or whether this is an act or a portrayal or a story, and you don't really you know, it, but there was a lot of mystery around it, so it was it, yeah. yeah. No, and the th- and the, the interesting the other thing that I think is important about that is like I mean definitely there's something you feel like you're getting away with something a little bit um, mm-hmm. and you don't know exactly what it is uh, but then the other part is it's that you feel like you're getting away with something and you don't know what it is and you're vaguely aware of the fact that this is sort of considered art now um, and I mean that's partly just the time and place thing you weren't aware of that probably when. You know, you heard NWA for the first time, or something like that, where you know that sort of like unbridled hostility um, was just like kind of knocked you on your ass. Because there had been so much time between you know when the album came out and when I first listened to it, it's like I get to think, "Wow, this is edgy stuff," and it's high art at the same time, and recognize that those two things aren't mutually at odds exclusive with one another. Yeah. Yeah, um, so I think that was sort of an important an important moment. And then the you know the the other really formative ones for me were one that you sent me, which was uh, which was Interpol, Turn on the Bright Lights, which I mean I you know I've said it in a lot of places before, but I mean it was an album that got me through high school in it's a way your that ex. I think yeah or Joy Division probably you know a little less a uh, um, little less energetic than than X maybe, but um, you know it's it's dark and an important sort of thing to be able to 
like connect to, I think, at a, a tough time in every kid's life, right? Um, and then the last one is the AAS, which was sort of the the yin to Interpol's yang, which was, um, I guess, that, uh, you know, a much, much more sort of, uh, it's like the Ramones for me, I guess. Yeah, I also um, think, it's pop punk. I, if I can inter- interject a little bit, but I think that also is very, it seems to me in, in the retelling of this story that um, it's also important to you because I think that that was your first, like your first personal discovery, not maybe yeah. your first personal discovery. No, but, but I mean, that was the first that one that stuck with me. Yeah, I definitely like that. You sent me Interpol. Um, that definitely sent me uh, to record stores that I wouldn't have otherwise gone to um, and sort right. of seek out my own stuff. But, but then, the like, yeah, yeah, was yours. Yeah, Fever to Tell was, and specifically, I'd like to claim that one, not their later albums, but, um, you know, that that really was, like, and, and still is just 30 minutes of pure bliss for me, so, um, and it's, like, and it just feels like it belongs to me in a way that I, you know, no one will necessarily understand, and that's just fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> so what about, uh, what about you guys? Well, I mean, for me, there's a, you know, there's a, a handful that, you know, sort of don't necessarily come together I think in both your cases you 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 know you have a, a bit of a cluster of time mine was more of a, an ex- extended time period I think there was a, a time you know when I was listening to the top 40 and and disco and I love which I still love and and you know the Bee Gees and everything um that I really like but the one that sort of the one song that I remember arriving is strangely like better than any other song was more than a feeling by Boston because I remember even just the first time hearing him thinking that is the perfect rock song. Um, and I don't think, um, you know, I've been less forthcoming about that probably in my cool guy. Yeah, I was going to say, I think you pretended party. to hate that song for many years. No, no, no. I never, <laughs> I never disliked it. I never pretended to dislike it, but I probably downplayed it. But it was, you know, it was the first album I ever bought. I bought it for my sister for Christmas or our sister for Christmas. Um, it was a picture disc. I bought it uh, at uh, Tower Records in Berkeley. Uh, for four ninety nine, and it was that you know I don't know for whatever reason that sonically was the coolest thing I'd ever heard at that point. Um, flash forward a few years, I think uh, my our grandmother Jeremy. I mean, uh, sorry, Christian. It, it gets confusing even for us. Uh, Christian, yeah, any, my, anybody who can tweet out like a family uh, family <laughs> tree for us, by the way, is yeah, is like the ultimate winner of yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll come up with an appropriate prize. Um, but our grandmother from England, uh, weirdly was very, uh, very into the rock music, uh, watched top of the pops all the time. Uh, I got her when I, when she was around 60, you know, it's grandmother. So she always seemed old, but there, it was a very strange thing. She loved music. Uh, she was a music teacher. She was a pianist and she, uh, absolutely adored when the two-tone craze hit England, which just seems absolutely absurd to people who are, you know, probably listening to this, uh, my 60-plus-year-old grandmother in England was sending me English Beat, Madness, Specials, uh, Selector Records. Uh, She liked The Clash. She sent me London Calling. She sent me the first Clash record uh, when it came out. So she was sort of a, a, a conduit to me. She, you know, there was it was hit and miss. She also sent me Shaken Stevens, um, and uh, she loved Adam and the Ants. Uh, it was a very strange. This is also a woman who, when I was fifteen years old and and smoking, at, in the house, hung over one morning, in England, came down and told me how 
great it was that I smoked cigarettes and that she thought all boys should smoke because it was sexy. Your, so, your, your Mima also taught me chopsticks on the piano, by the way. Yeah. And me. <laughs> yeah, she, she, was a, she was a nutter, but she was kind of great in that way that you don't realize when you're a kid. I mean, this was somebody who was, you know, sending me fistfuls of records at a young age. So I'd say 80, 80 you know, 79, 80, 81 uh, with London Calling and uh, the English Beat um, and Madness, really. Uh, you know, that was sort of, you know, affirming and changed the way I listen to music. Also, again, it was me sort of being a step ahead of a lot of people. I got all these records uh, from England. They didn't really chart in the States ever. And they charted, you know, when they did hit, it was a few years later. So, you know, things like Ghost Town by the Specials and stuff, they were pretty bizarre uh, records and and so that was one of the other major things you know Ghost Town, uh, Mirror in the Bathroom, and Lost in the Supermarket and Clampdown were huge for me. London Calling still probably my favorite rap album of all time. And then as I get a little uh, further along, I think The Smiths had a massive impact uh, for me. That was when I was listening to college radio, and again, going back and forth to England, was able to pick up their records. Hatful of Hollow wasn't released in America for a number of years. It was a, considered an album in England, and it wasn't really an album here in the States. It was in the import bins. I was able to pick that up when I was younger, and that I probably listened to that as much as I've listened to any album ever. Uh, got me through uh, the four high schools I went to, and the fourth high school I went to, I met... A bunch of people, a bunch of my classmates were New York City kids, and they they were sort of, uh, as they still probably are, always felt like they were sort of two steps ahead of everybody. Um, I think they, you know, they sort of quit doing every drug you did by the time they were 16. Um, and so, you know, I learned a lot. Of, that's when I first heard of the Velvet Underground. That's when I, f you know, met friends who were into you know, sort of German um, art music like Can and Kraftwerk and Popelfu and Amandul and... Um, strange, uh, you know, Eno's ambient stuff and not everything necessarily that I liked, but even to keep up with these guys, um, it, you know, sort of pulling my weight in this conversation, it really helped to have that British connection where I was discovering new music in England before that anyone ever heard it. So I was, you know, first to the Jesus and Mary chain, first person to have level terrace apart, first person to bring, you know, the, Dear Prudence, twelve inch or whatever it was, the Susanna Banshees record, um, and that was you know that was what really sort of changed uh, my life. I guess you know, it, and I think in all three of our cases, it's it's your teenage, early teenage to mid teenage years. So anyway, with that, um, I don't know if you guys want to take a break, and we can come back and talk about some. Let's uh, do it. All right. This 
Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Tonight we are talking about ourselves. We're telling the origin story of the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast and how we got here tonight. The last segment we're going to touch on uh, shows and events that changed our lives as a music fan, and, and I'm going to take the lead on this one. Um, it's, it goes way back. I mean, the, the first show I ever saw, like I said in the earlier segment, was, was Wings in 1975. So I saw a lot of live music at a very young age, and I always liked it, and I was always drawn to it. And... Between that time when your parents kind of have to take you to, to concerts and the time when you can start going by yourself, there was a bit of a reprieve or a respite between uh, seeing live music. But uh, I liked, you know, I was able to go to all ages shows in, when we moved to Boston in 84 when I was uh, four, 15. And I remember one of the first ones I went to was a Del Fuego show. Uh, uh, all ages afternoon matinee show um, with the Del Fuegos, who were a great, you know, sort of local Boston band that that hit uh, pretty well. Um, and not to mention the fact, I believe Warren Zane's guitar player was was Christian. roommates with my uncle Peter Cleveland. <laughs> yeah, which is it, at Andover, I think, yeah. which is hilarious. So. Yeah, it, it all comes full circle, man. But the channel was a, was a legendary Boston club. And even, you know, I remember being young and looking at the concert listings and just wanting so badly to be at these places and sort of imagining what they looked like. I would see ads for the channel and the Paradise and the Rat in the Boston Phoenix and just sort of imagine what it was like to go there and then started going to all-ages punk rock shows, which is usually what the all-ages shows were, were punk bands. Uh, in this case, it was the Del Fuegos, who were sort of a roots Americana band, sort of in the vein of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And there was a hardcore punk band that opened, and I remember just telling the guy that was in the band that I liked his the song that he played and getting a huge thank you, and that was a weirdly validating and memorable event. Like, all oh, these people speak and you know, our people. So, um, and they care that you like them. Yeah. Like yeah. it breaks down the wall. It, it really did. And, and so, you know, moving on from there, I remember, you know, a lot of the memor- more memorable shows, um, as I was, I, you know, I can cite a bunch. I mean, going to see public enemy on New Year's Eve in 1988, um, was, was amazing seeing a lot of shows. I, I you know, it was mostly college age. So, Seeing the pics, you know, having the uh, geographical advantage and and going to UMass uh, of seeing the Pixies a lot early on and seeing Dinosaur Jr. a lot early on was pretty cool. Uh, I remember seeing Dino, particularly uh, one of my favorite shows was they played a place called Katina's in Hadley, which was 
uh, a split-level ranch house in the town between Northampton and Amherst that was the only town that allowed them to play because they were so loud. And they, uh, uh, Katina's had a snake in the in a glass case in the dance floor. And I remember... <laughs> what kind of snake? I, you a know dead what? I snake. Hate snakes. <laughs> I hate snakes so much. It the kind that scared the dinosaur. shit out of Wyndham, yeah. Yeah. Um, I remember actually lying on the uh, right in front of the monitors on the stage that night. Um, just to sort of have my whole body vibrate from the uh, from the percussion and noise, it was pretty. By the way, wild. I bet snake. I bet the snake loved that for uh, for all of our PETA fans out there. I'm not sure that you can do this anymore. Um, yeah. <laughs> just as a, a side note, I actually saw Meatloaf at his absolute career Nadir uh, play a show there for eight dollars at Cadena's and Hadley as well. So the snake was still there. Um, you know, I, I would say that. You know, seeing Jane's Addiction uh, that time when I those, that weekend that I saw them twice, once at TT the Bears and once at Pearl Street Northampton really changed things because it was this was when you were you know one of the things that you, you know has continued to be a real passion of I think all of ours is catching bands on the way up so yeah um, to be able to you know for me to be able to say I saw Jane's Addiction at TT the Bears at two hundred and fifty person capacity club for four dollars is you know i mean that's the kind of thing that um you know everybody thinks they were they were born in an era where things didn't happen and and you're reminded that you had the the luxury and the pleasure of seeing certain things uh, rise up that were pretty important so uh jeremy and i i believe for my 24th birthday went to see nirvana and the breeders and half japanese at, I saw them at the Roseland, and then the next night we saw them at the New York Coliseum, which is now it's, uh, either the Trump Hotel or the Time Warner Center. In I think Columbus it's the Time Super Warner Center. Center, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, well, I mean, they're right next to each other. So, um, But you know, I remember staying, and Jeremy remembers the same thing. I think, what were you, 16? I was 24? I was, yeah, 16, and I remember, uh, I just remember all being kind of blown away with my friend Chris Mullen and and taking the train back to New Jersey and, and just I remember vividly you saying like, I'm so glad we saw that show. Cause that guy's going to be dead in six months. <laughs> and sure enough, unfortunately, awesome call. Being, yeah. he, was, he was dead. And, uh, but I mean, yeah, it was just, it was one of those bands that, that lived up to all the hype too. Yeah. They were it was great a great life. show. Yeah. And then, you know, I mean, there was another, you know, another one where I felt, I think the, the, the shows I will always remember most are the ones that I felt most fortunate to see in a strange setting. And, you know, I've had the luxury of, of knowing some musicians and seeing them play in very small spaces, but also one of the ones that I think was, you know, a real capper for me was the last night of, uh, college for me in 1992. Uh, I drove down my girlfriend, now wife, I lived in New York, and I took her to see Johnny Cash. I think it was 91 or 92. I took her to see Johnny Cash at the old Studio 54, and it was before American Recordings had come out and kind of revitalized Cash's career. And so he was, you know, it was a third full. You could go buy a beer and rest it on the... You could walk literally to the stage and stand there with your beer on the stage in a general admission form to see Johnny Cash, who, you know, to me is the greatest performer of all time. And uh, Marty Stewart was playing guitar, and he, they played for three and a half hours. And at one point, it was right before Christmas, and they started doing Christmas carols in German that he'd learned 
while he was uh, <laughs> stationed in Germany. So it was just bizarre, all over the map kind of you know storytelling. Come songs, come you know. But it was everybody who was there was sort of in awe of the fact that they were seeing Johnny Cash at Studio Fifty Four in a in a weird environment. So you know, those are the kind of the shows that that changed my life. Uh, Jer, what about you? Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, you definitely named one of them that Nirvana show, and and uh, you know, I think just in general, I think like you mentioned, I love live music. I think we all do very much like you win. I always, well, you know, I got firsthand, got to hear your stories of the replacements and the Pixies. I remember begging our mother to go to a general public concert you know, that she wouldn't let me go to or go see the cure and the Pixies, you know, play in, in the ladies. I never quite got the opportunity, but when I started to go on my own or go with you, there were definitely some standouts and I love the smell of clubs, and I really enjoy seeing bands in tiny places and have been lucky enough to do so. But one of the the first memories, actually, is a, is a large show, and it was the, the second year of Lollapalooza in 92. And uh, mainly because it was just, you know, it was kind of a, a brother experience. You know, we, we had sort of started to bond, and, and, you know, you were in college or out of college. I can't remember. You were out of – I can't remember. But anyways, I was in high school, and, and we went and, uh, you know, ended up, sneaking in some booze and just like had a great day and, and, you know, kind of talked about our crazy family and, and, you know, in a good way. And, um, you know, just, it was, it was a nice bonding experience and then got to see great music as well. You know, got to see Jesus and Mary Chain, Ice Cube, Pearl Jam was the second band on the bill, you know, who's never been my favorite band, but were great live and awesome to see, um, you know, Red Hot Chili Peppers in their prime, Soundgarden sort of in their prime. And it was just in ministry with like, you know, I think there was 19 guitar players playing the same riff, you know, on stage. Um, some of the smaller ones that, you know, a lot of my live music going, um, to shows was in Austin, Texas. I was in my early twenties when I lived there. So a couple of standouts for me were shows that I, you know, one that I couldn't get anyone to go to. I was, I was going to see the, you know, this little band called Wilco at the time who was on their last night of their tour of their second album. And they played this place called Liberty Lunch, which no longer exists. One of my favorite clubs in Austin. And I literally just had to drag two friends who, who had never even heard the band. And, and, uh, I'll never forget that show. Cause it was just one of those fun nights where the band actually the roadies all came out and started doing you know playing covers so they did immigrant song and ziggy stardust then the band wilco came out and backed them up for glam rock songs black flag covers and then they launched into just a full you know rock and roll shit show of their own songs and covers and you know much like those kind of heroic replacements concerts or something i I dreamed about being a part of that was sort of that experience for me which was um, you know, all I was kind of looking for at that point. And then, um, another one in Austin that I, I caught just off guard was an early white stripe show. And, and it was a guy I worked with at a, a restaurant, you know, it was like, come see this band with me. It's 12 bucks. You know, they're great from Portland. I'd never heard of the white stripes, never seen them, didn't know their, you know, their, their look or anything. And, you know, literally it was, it was like one of those nights I'd been out many nights prior and was like, Oh God, fine. I'll just go to shut you up. And, uh, you know, almost dropped my beer bottle the minute they started. I was just, what the fuck is this? <laughs> like, these guys are like, I, mean, I turned to them, like, are these covers? Like, what are they? And this is amazing. Yeah. Like, they were a great live. Uh, and it was shocking. at Emo's Tiny Club. I mean, it was just, yeah, they were amazing. It was, it was just blew me away. And I've seen them since at bigger places. And it's one of those ones that, like, just feel really lucky, right time, right place, right evening. Um, the last one is, is another Austin one, or I'll just tie two together, more singer-songwriter type, which, um, you know, I'm a huge Towns Van Zandt fan, as you guys both know. Um, 
I'm a huge Flatlanders fan too. One of the Flatlanders, Butch Hancock, kind of the lesser of the three, was doing a show at this classic sort of acoustic cafe place in Austin called Cactus Cafe. A lot of great songwriters got their start there. Just a cool place to go have beers and listen to, you know, singer songwriter, country singers. Um, that night he was doing Town songs because it was an anniversary of Town's death and it was the first night that um, Jimmy Dale Gilmore and Joe Ely and, as the Flatlanders had ever been back together since their, you know, 1970s album, the original album well, that, that was a cult classic. Uh, Go ahead, sorry. No, that was just going to say that was the thing about the Flatlanders who I love. Uh, you know, they, they teasingly uh, called their collection more a legend than a band because everyone had sort of, you know, people had sort of heard of the Flatlanders. No one ever heard the album because it was never... I think you still can't really released. get it. Yeah, I mean, if you yeah. have it, it's got to be something that you rec- they were reunited and you can get that stuff. But so for me, it was it was just you know it was kind of like two of my favorite things you know in music or especially the singer songwriter genre. Hearing the Flatlanders back together for the first time and you know and, and doing Towns Van Zandt songs was really an amazing experience in a classic sort of Texas. Yeah, you could only do that in Texas, you know, it's time and place again. And then lastly, you know, it just was a a show that, and this is, you know, around the time I actually met Christian, and I think he's going to go into the festival a little more, but, you know, we happened to have VIP Fest tickets at at Pitchfork, and, you know, just my wife and I were huge fans of the Bon Iver album, uh, Forever Emma, Forever Ago, and and, uh, For Emma, sorry, Forever Ago, and it was just one of those perfect summer nights, we had backstage passes, side stage, you know, it was just uh, him and a bass player and a drummer, and um, it was just one of those magical nights, you know, that you just were really, really just a great show, and, and uh, you know, where I realized that guy can carry, carry he can carry a, a stage on his own, um, doesn't need all the effects, but it, it was awesome. So, I mean, you know, in general, like, one of the cool things today is, you know, I, I feel really lucky, you know, I don't get out to shows as much, but whenever I do, it's with you two, you know, I'm either with Wynn, and, you know, he talks me into coming into, I live in the suburbs now, so talks me coming into Boston and seeing something at Great Scott's or um, Bright Music Hall, and then I get to go to New York a lot for work, and, and, you know, Christian will drag me out to the many clubs in his neighborhood, so I'll turn it over to Christian. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, look, there are a million things that I want to talk about, um, but I will I will sort of spare you guys. I think there's plenty of opportunity for that uh, uh, on this podcast. You know, I think a couple of highlights that, like, the one show that I think in my early formative years sort of blew the doors off for me was seeing the AAS open for Sleater Kinney. Um, it was unreal. Uh, and you know, it came at a, it came at the perfect time. I had just gotten into both basically. Um, and you know, it was huge. It was everything, you know, I, I could have possibly wanted out of that. Um, they're both extraordinary live performers. Um, I have to I have to quickly name check the two bands in the first concert that I ever actually went to by myself um, because it's so awesome. It was a Japanese metal band headlining um, in the Red Room of the Black Cat. Um, the opener was a Baltimore noise band called Leprechaun Catering. Um, so if you guys are listening, uh, please please reach out to us. We have no idea where you went. Um, and then and then the headliner was uh, was the Japanese metal band named Ultra Bidet. Um, I was actually hanging out at the bar at the Black Cat um, not too like a couple months ago, and I, literally the only person there waiting for my friend and Dave Grohl walks in and like sat down on the chair you know on the stool next to me. Um, I was like. Oh shit! Hey, Dave Grohl. Uh, I've come here my entire life, and I've never actually seen you here. Um, and made a point of of 
name-checking both of those bands to him, and he just sort of looked at me for a second and said, I've never heard of either of them. And I was like, well, all right, um, <laughs> you know, at least we're honest. Uh, so, yeah, those were both, I mean, like, that was cool. There were about 12 people in the room. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I definitely, like, the fact that the first show I went to by myself was such a weird, it, put it this way, it set the bar pretty low. Well, no, um, but it also, it also is such an important, like, thing to go into these clubs that you, you've been pining to go to your whole life yeah or no well you're you realize it's been your whole life but it really it's been a you know a year or whatever yeah and the fact that you sort of realize that you're not at a place there Mm -hmm. um and they do sort of become a home and I, i think you know an important part of this is and this actually was in the relatively brief conversation that i had with dave Kroll. actually the the you know a big part of it was i was saying like look growing up in dc was amazing precisely because all shows were all ages, um, almost without fail, because uh, because of the sort of '80s punk rock scene that had been there. I mean, they were you know they were the first guys to to put black sharpie on your on your hands and say you know if you're not going to drink, you can come in and listen. And I, like that, I didn't even understand the sort of social political context of that at the time. Um, I didn't really get the history, but I took full advantage of it, and I think it really is it is sort of a game changer for young uh, young fans of music. Um, and then, yeah, the last thing, look, I, I'll jump ahead. I, I think there were a million great, great bands Shows and concerts that I saw yeah. in D.C., exactly. But, I mean, I, I do want to jump ahead to the point that uh, the first time I met Jeremy, um, he was cool enough to... to let me have one of the all, you know, all access passes. Um, I think I was 16, 17. Um, and, uh, it was a summer break. You, you know, I came out to Chicago to meet you, um, Wyndham and, and meet you for the first time, Jeremy, um, and, and Alexis, of course. Uh, and you know, we just had a killer time. Like, I mean, it was, it, it was two or three days, I guess. Yeah. Three days. Yeah, it was three Friday days night, of, Saturday and Sunday. It was, it was like, like rock and roll. Wonderland. All of my favorite bands. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. I was completely yeah, starry. Yeah. Um, and you know, like I think that it did, it did a lot of things, um, for me and perhaps to me. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think a big part of it was like what you talked about earlier when, you know, and just like providing a simple compliment to somebody who played a set and realizing that they're grateful for it. It's like seeing it behind the fence and seeing, you know, that these, that these musicians are, are both, yeah, you're heroes when you're in high school, but they're also people and real people. And, you know, um, you can talk to them, uh, was, was a really like important sort of lesson that I think has shaped the way I've engaged with music ever since. And, you know, it's been really exciting to, to talk to Krauss on this, on this podcast and, um, USA Nails as well. Um, and, you know, we look forward to doing a ton more of that, but, but I do think that sort of pulling back the veil a little bit and saying, look, you, the consumer, the listener, and, and the huge fan of music can, can be a part of this too, um, is, is a really important lesson for a kid to learn. I, we also think it started the three-way sharing of uh, bands and, and, you know, different um, likes. Because I remember very vividly Wynn and I having an agenda of bands to see and then Christian having a very different agenda at that time, like going to the side stage and the DJ tent and, and talking about bands that I actually hadn't, hadn't even heard of. And, you know, I was not not as old as I am today during that. So it was kind of cool. I shockingly never actually thought about it that way, but that's true. You guys, you guys showed up with your list and I sort of mm-hmm. showed up with mine. And we sort of, 
we sort of reconciled them. And uh, yeah, no, that's true. That's a great point. Like, uh, that was, uh, I don't even remember. I mean, all those, I think we went to six of those in a row. And so I don't really recall who was which year, but I, um, it's a, it, I just remember it being a, a particularly, it was such a fun time and it was, you know, kind of crazy that you guys had never met until then. So uh, perfectly good. And and the fact is, to this day, the one picture that exists of the three of us <laughs> in one place is like from. Yeah, that I show, have to so. apologize uh, for that. It's uh, it makes Christian look like a, a t- t- <laughs> 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 makes me look like a mess, and Jeremy looks fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, whatever. That's not not that any of that's changed. I, I sleep so. in an oxygen <laughs> tank. So. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, exactly. um, so let's we'll take a break, a quick break, and then we'll uh, come back with uh, our show closer. back to the brother 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 podcast uh we're gonna end this podcast where we're gonna end every podcast with two quick segments one is uh we're gonna add a song each to the uh 110 best songs of all time and for me that tonight is i'm gonna just sneak sneak one by you guys and go uh, super classic um i'm going bastards of the young by uh, the replacements boom there it is. Nice. All right. Yeah. Um, I will uh, I will hop in here, and while we're going mega hit um, and ultra cliche, Wyndham, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw in Maps by the nice. Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs just because I've been talking about them so much. I fucking well, love I also that think song. it's on every mix any of us have ever made, so. Yeah, it damn well ought to be. Well, if there's one in, that you left it off of. <laughs> now it's on this mix, so perfect. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm going to go with an, a classic and... and kind of uh, inspired by the, the performance by Tribe Called Quest on the Grammys. I'm not going to go with that, the newer song, but I'm going to go with the first song that really really got me into those guys, and that's uh, Check the Rhyme off of uh, Low End Theory. Nice. 
Nice, because I think the first two songs I heard by them were Benita Applebaum. I mean, not Benita Applebaum. Uh, Left My Wallet in El Segundo. And maybe Benita Yeah, those were the first ones I heard, but Check the Rhyme yeah, was the first one that I loved. One. Anyway, and so uh, we'll close out with our, with our final segment, like we do every week. Uh, what are you listening to? Jeremy, what are you listening to? So um, I'm trying to catch up on some of the Oscar films, and I watched Arrival. And uh, sadly to report, I hated it. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to leave with that. <laughs> Aliens and uh, dying children. Stay away. Nice. Uh, well, I, I actually uh, went and saw I Am Not Your Negro today, the uh, James Waldwin documentary, which is also Oscar-nominated. And, you know, what I think was a relatively meager year for uh, um, films uh, was a f- tremendous year in documentary. And I would, you know, say that, go see that or see it as, as soon as you can. Um, you know, the, the other ones that are, are some of the ones that are nominated, I mean... Um, O.J. Simpson made in America one of the greatest, I think one of the best documentaries I've ever seen uh, and my favorite movie of the year uh, Gleason, made by my friend Clay Tweel, who, which I think is a tremendous and uh, really um, affecting and, you know, beautiful film um, you know, there's a, I, I would say lean hard on the documentaries this year Christian, what are you listening to? Uh, well, Spotify got added, or excuse me, Prince got added to Spotify mm. this week, so um, I've been listening to nothing but Prince since that happened. Um, What's and, your uh, Yeah. He's good. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I would I would give him a shot. Um, in the uh, in the parlance of, of guys over at Sound Opinions, the, uh, the well, what is it, buy it, um, don't buy it, or uh, maybe buy it? Yeah, I think, I think Prince is a buy nice. it. Um, there's, there's no question there. Yeah. So 1999 has been pretty much on continuous loop, a little bit of dirty mind as well, but we're there. Sweet. Well, um, let's, uh, well, I guess we'll sign off for now, but, uh, thank you for listening and thank you, uh, for being interested in, uh, where we come from. Brother, 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 brother. Good night. That's it for today's episode of the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and drop us a line at brotherpod.com. Thanks very much to Damien Kendall for producing, and from Wyndham, Jeremy, and Christian, see you next time.